do we not question the faithfulness of the faithful God that we serve? That's the essence of our sin. That's the self-deception that we engage in. Every single one of us in this room, every single day, we have a sin nature to deal with that says God's trying to keep me down. He's not trustworthy. He's not loving. He's not who he says he is. And so I got to get out from under that so that I can be the master of my own world. I can build up my own little mini kingdom over and against his because I'm the master of my own domain. I get to make decisions for myself. We're trying to get out from under God's hand. Welcome to the weekly sermon at Gateway. My name is Jason McNabb. The story of King David is a remarkable testimony of God's faithfulness to his people Israel. His life and faith journey point us to Christ, who is the promised king that would surpass David and save his people. You can find more information about this series at gatewaycrc.org. And now, here's this week's message. Good morning. My name's Eileen Nordham, and today we'll be reading from 1 Samuel 10, verses 17 to 22. Samuel summoned the people of Israel to the Lord at Mizpah and said to them, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I brought Israel up out of Egypt, and I delivered you from the power of Egypt and all the kingdoms that oppressed you. But you have now rejected your God, who saves you out of all your disasters and calamities. And you have said, No, appoint a king over us. So now, present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and clans. When Samuel had all Israel come forward by tribes, the tribe of Benjamin was taken by Lot. Then he brought forward the tribe of Benjamin, clan by clan, and Matri's clan was taken. Finally, Saul, son of Kish, was taken. But when they looked for him, he was not to be found. So they inquired further of the Lord, has the man come here yet? And the Lord said, yes, he has hidden himself among the supplies. This is the word of the Lord. What's wrong with us? The collective human race. Why is the world not the way it's supposed to be? Why is there so much suffering and injustice, genocide and murder and hatred? Why is there so much suffering in the world? The answer to that question, at least according to scripture, is that all of our problems are sociological problems, our psychological problems, our economic and physical and social problems are actually theological problems. And so what that means is for all of our semi-proposed solutions that we try to provide as an answer to the world's problems, things like all we need is new and better government, all we need is better legislation. All we need is new and better access to health care. All we need is, is better schools. All we need is the world to be reshaped in the way that I think best. Then the world will be a better place. All those semi-proposed solutions fall dangerously short of the real reason why the world is the way, it's, the way that it is. And so let me just put it this way for you. The real problem of the world is human sin. Or let me say this with a little bit more edge. 
the real problem of the world is the sin that rages in your heart and in mine. That's the problem with the world. So I've entitled our message today, uh, Sin as Self-Deception. Here's what I mean by that. The human heart has an almost infinite ability to lie to itself, to deceive itself, especially when that truth that we're confronting in our lives is too difficult to bear. It's too challenging for us. It causes us to engage in self-deception. I've shared this with you before. No one lies to you more than you lie to yourself. And we see a uh, case study, if you will, in the person of Saul. There's no greater story in all of scripture, I would propose to you, of how self-deception works in the hearts and the minds and the attitudes of people than the tragedy of Saul, the first king of Israel. And we have something that we can learn from it of the self-deception, the dynamics of self-deception, and what we can learn from it today. So we decided to do things a little bit differently. Last week, we learned about the downfall of King Saul when we looked at 1 Samuel chapter 15. Pastor Marcel led us in that. And now we're going back all the way to chapters 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, and 14. We're going to cover seven chapters in the next two weeks, and we're going to watch how this unfolds to see how Saul got there, what led to his downfall, what resulted in his downfall, what were his actions, his attitudes, his motivations that led to everything that we saw this past week. So are there any uh, Star Wars fans in the house? Perfect. Any Star Trek fans? You're all wrong. You're all wrong. Star Wars is the best. Just had to add that. So here's, here's what we need to see. There's only one way to watch Star Wars, friends. If you're not doing it this way, you're doing it wrong. You watch the original trilogy first, right? And then you see Darth Vader and he's doing his thing. And then you go back and you watch the prequels and you learn about how Anakin becomes Darth Vader. That's the way to do it. And in the same way, that's what we're doing today. We've already seen the outcome of Saul, but now we're going to see with our own eyes and with our own ears how this came to be. And so here are the questions I want to put in front of you. How did we get there? What attributed to his downfall? And what can we learn from it? So if you got your Bibles, open them up. We're going to be marching through the text today. So as always, but especially today, have your Bibles in front of you. First Samuel chapter 9, that's where I'm going to start. While you're looking for that, I want you to see that Saul is a stand-in for all of us. For every person in this room, he's a stand-in for us. Israel thought that Saul was the chosen one. Israel thought Saul was the Messiah, the king of the Jews, the long-awaited king who would make all things new. But he wasn't. He was just the old Adam revisited. But there are things that we can learn from it. He's an example of the problem of our sin and our desperate need for a savior today. So the season of Advent is right around the corner, is it not? We're, we're getting there next week. And so I'm going to take two weeks to try to convince you that you're a lot worse than you think you are. You're welcome. That's where we're going. I, I want you to see this in your own heart. I want you to feel it. I want you to try and ask the question, why was the advent of Jesus necessary? Why did he have to come in the first place? 
Couldn't he have just like glossed over all our sin and said, hey, I forgive you, don't worry about it. Why did Jesus have to come? And more than that, why did he have to go to Golgotha, the land of the skull, to stretch out his hands and to die for us? Why was that necessary? And we think about that in the season of Advent. Advent literally means arrival. Adventus, that's the the Latin word for arrival. We're anticipating the arrival of Jesus, but why did he come? Why did he have to come? And this story helps articulate the answer to that question. So let's take a look at our text. 1 Samuel chapter 9, starting at verse 1. There was a Benjamite, a man of standing whose name was Kish, son of Abiel, the son of Zeror, the son of Bekorath, the son of Aphia of Benjamin. Kish had a son named Saul, as handsome a young man as could be found anywhere in Israel, and he was a head taller than anyone else. This is the introduction of Saul. Saul was kind of like Mr. Israel. He was everything that you would ever want in a king. Tall, dark, and handsome, had a commanding voice, everything that Israel ever wanted. And so God said to Samuel, go anoint Saul as the king. That's what Israel wants, right? Saul literally means you asked for it. That's what the name of Saul means. You asked for it. Give Saul to the people of Israel. Let them have what they want. So Samuel does that, and it seems like things start off pretty well. In fact, if you are looking through your Bible, look at verse 21. This is one of the first times we hear Saul speak, and he says this, Am I not a Benjamite from the smallest tribe of Israel? And is not my clan the least of all the clans of the tribe of Benjamin? Why do you say such a thing to me? It appears as though there's humility there with Saul. It appears as though Saul is small in his own eyes. And if you recall, the theme of the books of Samuel is this, God humbles the proud and God exalts the humble. Saul appears to be very humble in this moment. Just like Anakin on Tatooine, he has some humble beginnings. And throughout the story, we see this language of ascent and exaltation. Look at verse 11 in your Bible. It says, Saul goes up to the city. Do you see that? And then in verse 14, Saul goes up to the high place. Verse 22, Saul goes up to the head of the table. Verse 25, Saul goes up to the roof of his house to spend the night. And I've told you before that the books of Samuel, they have pictures to help you see what is happening in the unseen realm. And so us as readers, here's what we see. We see Saul, he's ascending, going up, 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 up. And we're wondering to ourselves, could he be the one? Is he the anointed one? The long-awaited king of the Jews, the one who will make all things new, the one who was foretold all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. Is he the one? That's the question that we're thinking about. And so, here's what we see in this story. This humble and lowly Saul is both literally and figuratively ascending toward his throne. And then the very next verse, chapter 10, verse 1, says this. Then Samuel took a flask of olive oil. He poured it on Saul's head and kissed him, saying, Has not the Lord anointed you ruler over his inheritance? That's what Christ means. It means anointed. So here's Saul. He's now anointed as the king. He is the one. 
that we've been waiting for? Or is he? Or is he? But here's what's so interesting about all this. In both of these sequences, we see that Saul says nothing. Nothing at all. All this happened in secret. The anointing of Saul happened in secret. No one else knows about this just yet. And I'm not sure about you, but most people, upon getting confirmed as a king or a president or a prime minister or some position of great power, would they not quickly wield that? Would they not quickly say, yes, I'm the new king. I'm the one that you've all been waiting for. And yet Saul does it. doesn't do that. And so again, the question is, it seems like there's humility there with Saul. It seems like he's small in his own eyes. But is he? Is he? The next two stories follow suit. So the next story I want to show you is when Saul is publicly selected by Lot in front of all of Israel. That's chapter 10, verse 17. Take a look at this with me. Chapter 10, verse 17. This is the one that we, uh, we just heard. Samuel summoned the people of Israel to the Lord at Mitzpah and said to them, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. I brought Israel up out of Egypt. I delivered you from the power of Egypt and all the kingdoms that oppressed you. But you have now rejected your God who saves you out of all your disasters and calamities. And you have said, no, appoint a king over us. So now, present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and by your clans. When Samuel had all Israel come forward by tribes, the tribe of Benjamin was taken by Lot. Then he brought forward the tribe of Benjamin, clan by clan, and the Matri's clan was taken. Finally, Saul, son of Kish, was taken. But when they looked for him, he was not to be found. So they inquired further of the Lord, Has the man come here yet? And the Lord said, yes, he has hidden himself among the supplies. What a strange story. Let me ask you this question. Why is Saul hiding? Why is he hiding away in the luggage? What's his motivation to do that? And let me ask you a, a different question. Does this story remind you of any other story in the Bible in which someone hides and then the Lord reveals where they are. It's in a book that starts with G and ends with Genesis. Genesis chapter 3. Open your Bibles there. So put a tab here. Samuel, 1 Samuel uh, chapter 10. Keep a tab there. Go all the way back to the third page in your Bible. Genesis chapter 3. Here's what I want you to see from this story. 1 Samuel chapter 10 and 11 in Genesis chapter 3, they practically mirror one another. And the question we have to ask is, why? What is the author, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, trying to reveal to us about the nature of sin and self-deception, the dynamics of it, and what we can learn from it today? Why is it in there? But I want you to see the mirroring with your own eyes. Here's, here's the question that the author is proposing to you. Is Saul the new Adam? Is he the Christ? Or is he the old Adam revisited? Is he the new Adam? Or is he the old Adam revisited? Which one? Now let's take a look at Genesis chapter 3. Starting at verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from the tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the tree in the garden, 
But God did say, you must not eat the fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will certainly not die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then both of their eyes were opened and they realized that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord, that God, uh, uh, the sound, the Lord God, as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? Do you see the similarities? Let's just recap in our minds. Adam and Eve, they both hide, and God says, where are you? Saul hides with the luggage in 1 Samuel chapter 10, and Israel says, where are you? That's the mirroring that we see. And then it goes from, stain, from strange to stranger. Look at verse 10. He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Now here's what you have to know about what we just read. That word serpent is the Hebrew word nahash. Hang on to that. Now we're going to read what happens next in 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel chapter 11 Starting at verse 1, right after the story of Saul being confirmed as king and then hiding, it goes straight to this. Nahash, the Ammonite, went up and besieged Jabesh Gilead. That's strange. That's odd. It's exactly the same thing. Nahash means serpent. Serpent means Nahash. So what's going on here? Why are these stories being mirrored by the author in Genesis 3 and the author in Samuel? And if you keep reading the story, you will discover that Nahash, king of the Ammonites, he tries to make a treaty with Israel. He says this, I will make a treaty with you on the condition that I gouge out your right eye. What are your eyes for? Are your eyes not for the ability to see things clearly? So what does Nahash want to do? He wants to impede Israel's ability to see clearly. Here's my question for you. What is the serpent doing, the serpent Nahash in Genesis 3, what is he doing to Adam and Eve? Is he not trying to impede Adam and Eve's ability to see clearly? When he says, did God really say? Are you sure? I think God's just trying to keep you down. I think God doesn't love you. He knows that if you take of this fruit, you will be like God. He's just trying to keep you down. In both stories, we hear of this Nahash who is trying to impede the people of God's ability to see God for who he truly is. That's the essence of this story. And so I want you to see all the pictures. Do you feel it? Do you see it? 
I love the Bible. So cool. So here's what we see next. When, when Adam and Eve succumb to the lies of the serpent, God says to Nahash the serpent, he says this in Genesis 3.15. This is the first promise that we find in the whole Bible. The first story of redemption. The first gospel moment. God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. What is the story pointing toward? To Jesus, to the Christ, the anointed one, the one who will come and make all things new. Now back to 1 Samuel chapter 11. What happens? We have Saul. He goes out to war against the serpent. He goes out to war against Nahash and he crushes him. And so once again, the question is, is Saul the snake crusher? Let's recap together. Let's put all the stories together. Chapter 9, Saul goes up up, up, up. He ascends to his throne. Then he is anointed. He is Christed. Then in chapter 10, he is confirmed by signs. He is publicly confirmed amongst all of Israel. Chapter 11, Saul crushes Nahash the Ammonite. And so once again, we have that question. Is Saul the serpent crusher? Is he the anointed one? Is he the one that everyone's been waiting for to make all things new? Is Saul the new Adam, or is he the old Adam revisited? Spoiler alert, Anakin becomes Vader. Saul is not the snake crusher. He's the old Adam revisited. He's the old Adam revisited. He is not the redeemer of all of humanity. So here's the point, friends. When Saul hides away in the luggage... He is a stand-in for Adam and Eve when they hide in their nakedness after they take of the fruit in the Garden of Eden. When Saul ascends going up, 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 up toward his throne, he is a stand-in for all of Israel when they say, God, you're great and all, but what we really need is a king, something that we can see, something we can put our trust in that we can touch and control and manipulate. And Saul is also a stand-in for all of us when we engage in the great lie. What is the great lie of self-deception? Let me ask you, what is, what is the essence of our sin? And to help answer that question, let me answer it with another question. What motivated Adam and Eve to eat of the fruit in the Garden of Eden? They had everything perfect Everything was going just swell. Everything was great. They were able to walk with God in the cool of the day. What motivated them to take of the fruit? Was it not the great lie from Nahash, the serpent, who said, who provoked them with a question of suspicion? Did God really say, does God really love you? God's trying to keep you down. He's trying to manipulate you. He doesn't love you. He doesn't care about you. He's not concerned about his glory and your good. Surely that's not him. You should try to get out from under God's hand. That's the goal. Here's what we read in Genesis 3 verse 4. You will not certainly die, Nahash said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. So here's the essence of sin. This is the way I put it in your note sheet. Sin is to try to get out from under God's hand. 
out from under God's gaze, out from under God's control, and then to turn towards yourself. To get out from under God and then to gain control for yourself. That's sin. Now, most Christians, we would never say something like God isn't trustworthy or uh, God's trying to keep me down or God doesn't love me. We don't say those things out loud. No, we just think them. And in the dark of night and in our moments of doubt, do we not say, does God really love me? Does he really care about me? Does he really have my best interest at heart? Is it true that he's not trying to keep me down, but he's trying to raise me up? And in those moments of doubt, do we not question the faithfulness of the faithful God that we serve? That's the essence of our sin. That's the self-deception that we engage in. Every single one of us in this room, every single day, we have a sin nature to deal with that says God's trying to keep me down. He's not trustworthy. He's not loving. He's not who he says he is. And so I got to get out from under that so that I can be the master of my own world. I can build up my own little mini kingdom over and against his because I'm the master of my own domain. I get to make decisions for myself. We're trying to get out from under God's hand. That's the nature of self-deception. So back to the question. Why is Saul hiding in the luggage? Isn't that strange? You've just been declared king. No one can find you. He's hiding away in the luggage. Some commentators, when I was reading some commentaries this week, they said um, he was hiding because he's humble. Not me, not me. I don't think that's the case. Some said he's hiding because It's revealing some of the secret hidden motivations of his heart that he was vulnerable and narcissistic. I I think there's some truth to that. But here's what I see most of all. I think most people who hide away from God, whether it be Adam and Eve in the garden, whether it be Saul in this story, the real essence of that sin is that they're really self-obsessed people. Right? A self-obsessed person is kind of like someone who repeatedly says on repeat, I'm a nobody, I'm a nobody, I'm a nobody, I'm a nobody, I'm a nobody. Someone who keeps saying that is actually a self-obsessed person. It reminds me of what C.S. Lewis says in his book, Mere Christianity. I think this is a perfect illustration of what we see here. He says, do not imagine that if you meet a really humble man, he will be what most people call humble nowadays. He will not be a sort of greasy, smarmy person who's always telling you that he's a nobody. Probably, all you'll think about him is that he seemed a cheerful, intelligent chap who took a real interest in what you said to him. And if you dislike him, it will be because you feel a little envious of anyone who seems to enjoy life so easily. But he will not be thinking about humility. He will not be thinking about himself at all. If anyone would like to acquire humility, I can, I think, tell him the first step. The first step is to realize that one is proud. At least nothing whatever can be done before it. If you think you are not conceited, it means you are very conceited indeed. Do you feel that? There's a certain type of person who is openly narcissistic. They... they, 
repeatedly tell you that the world revolves around them. But then there's another type of narcissism that repeatedly says, I'm a nobody, I'm a nobody, I'm a nobody, I'm a nobody, I'm a nobody. But really, they're still self-obsessed. And that's Saul. When he is confirmed as king, he gets it right in that he's trying to be a humble person. But he's on the other side of the narcissism scale, that he is still convinced that everything rides on him. And if he realized that it was God himself who put him in control, then he would stand where he was and said, it is God who gives me what I need. Instead, he is so self-obsessed that he is hiding away in the luggage. And we can do the same things in our lives today. And so perhaps you've heard it this way before. What is Christian humility? Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less and of God more. So for the remainder of our time, here's what I'd like to do. I'd like for us to roll up our sleeves and to ask ourselves, practically speaking, what does it look like to be a self-obsessed person, a narcissistic person who engages in self-deception? And then after articulating the problem, we can ask ourselves, what is the antidote? What is the solution that we find in our text? So let's start off with the question, practically speaking, what does this look like? And the answers are almost infinite, but let me share just a couple of stories with you, ranging from mildly humorous to quite serious. I'll start with a personal example. Um, those of you who know me on a personal level, you know that if there was ever such thing as a man card, I wouldn't have it, okay? So like my kids, if ever there's a broken toy in the house, they'll run up to me and they'll go, where's mom? And then, you know, they go find it somewhere else. Um, or let's say Julie and I are driving in a car and you start here, or in our van, and you start hearing that noise you don't want to hear, ka-clunk, ka-clunk, ka-clunk. Julie will say something like me, to me like, oh, we should open the hood and take a look at that. I laugh. Open the hood? Like, what am I going to do? Mm, yeah, look, there's, there's stuff in there doing things. You know, I, I don't know. So she'll be like, okay, fine. We should get it taken in, right? We go to a mechanic, like figure out what's going on with that noise. And then here's, here's what I'll do. I'll say, Julie, we don't know. We don't know. Vans make noises like this all the time. And that little check engine light, you know, that's just a ploy from car dealers and from mechanics and other people. They just want more of your money. Vans make noises like this all the time. And then I do one more technique, which always saves the day. I turn up the radio. <laughs> the noise is gone. See what I did there? Follow me for more marriage advice. So let me give you um, a more serious example. Perhaps you have a son who's getting into fights at school and he's going to the principal's office. You sense there's something wrong and you might even have a fleeting moment where you say, I think there's something deeper that's going on here. But it's almost instantly replaced with parent mode. Right? And then you start thinking to yourself, who was the kid that was involved? What provoked my poor Johnny to punch that other kid in the face? My poor kid, what happened to my precious child that he had to punch that other kid? Do you feel it? Do you sense it? Like, what's our instinct as parents? It's always easier to put on our binoculars and to assess the problems that are happening over there as opposed to pulling up the mirror and saying, 
is this, could it possibly be that my son or my daughter is serving as an indictment on what I am modeling in the home? Or what's going on in our orbit? Or the types of things that we are valuing or showcasing in our house? Those are difficult questions. And so what's the nature of self-deception? Is it not trying to recognize that there's something there, there's something painful, but I don't want to address it. I don't want to address the root cause. So I'm going to look over there. There's another dynamic at play. Someone else is involved in this. Someone else is at fault. And then as parents, we might say something like this. The woman you put here in the garden with me, she gave me the fruit and so I ate. The serpent tricked me and so I ate. See what I did there? We do this all the time. Self-deception is when you know what you know but you don't want to know. You know what you know but it's too painful to enter into that space and to realize that there is some unresolved baggage that I just don't have the heart to deal with. So let me give you one more example of this, and this is perhaps the quintessential example. There was a famous incident where Eisenhower was uh, liberating Germany at the end of World War II, and he was so, so tired of the fact that he would come into all these towns and he would find these supposed work camps and he would enter in, and he would see the most terrible of atrocities. He would see people who are malnourished to the point of death, people who are lined up and shot on the spot, people who would go into gas chambers and be killed, bodies left for dead. And then he would go into these towns, and he would have conversations with the Germans there, and he'd always hear the same thing. I didn't know. I didn't know. He talked to a mayor of that town. I didn't know. And it finally got to a boiling point, and many of you perhaps know the story if you read history. There was one famous incident in which he got so sick and tired of hearing that, that he took every man, woman, and young person of that town, and he brought them into that work camp. And he made them walk through and see the terrible atrocities. And then he made them take all the dead bodies, throw them in a ditch, and bury them. And that night the mayor of that town and his wife, they both hung themselves. Why did they do that? Because they knew. You know what you know, but you don't want to know. I didn't know. I didn't know. I'm not culpable in this. Other things were going on. And in very subtle ways, we do the same things, friends. Saul was a master of this. He was a master of self-deception. And it's as old as Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 3. Someone else made me do it. There are other dynamics at play. I got the binoculars out. I don't want to look in the mirror because it's too painful. It hurts too much. And that's the problem that each and every one of us have. We have such an incredible capacity for self-deception. So I want to read how this story ends. It's 1 Samuel chapter 12, starting at verse 12. And this is where everything is brought together. And we see not only the essence of our sin, but the prescription to deal with it. Samuel says, starting at verse 12, When you saw that Nahash, serpent, 
king of the Ammonites was moving against you, or when you saw the serpent in the garden coming against you, you said to me, no, we want a king to rule over us. No, we don't trust God, even though the Lord your God was your king. Now here is the king that you have chosen, the one that you asked for, you sold. See, the Lord has set a king over you. Now let's look down at verse 16. Now then, stand still and see this great thing the Lord is about to do before your eyes. Is it not the wheat harvest now? I will call on the Lord to send thunder and rain, and you will realize what an evil thing you did in the eyes of the Lord when you asked for a king. So Saul, or Samuel, he's revealing the first two things that we need to do every single time we engage in a self-deception. The first thing he outlines here is you need to examine your own heart. Examine your own heart. The right treatment always starts with the right diagnosis. A wrong diagnosis can always be fatal. And so he says, you have to see it for what it is. He puts their sin right in front of them. You asked for it. You sold it. Here's your king. You got to see the consequences of your actions. And so the calling for us is to examine our own hearts. And in each of the story, these stories that we've reviewed today, we see it. Like, for instance, we can ask our, Adam and Eve could ask themselves, why did you want to eat that fruit when God told you not to? We can ask Saul, or we can ask Israel's story, why do you want a new king when God was meant to be your king? We can ask Saul, why are you hiding away in the baggage when God promised to give you what you need? Or we can ask ourselves, what are you living for? What are you putting your trust in? What are you putting your hope in? What are you willing to die for? What are the hidden motivations in your life today? Israel said, God's great and all, but I can only trust in something that I can see. And we have to ask ourselves, what are the secret hidden motivations of our own hearts that lead us to doing things that are truly not putting our trust in God. So we have to examine our sin, not only, but we also have to examine the very reasons why we would do anything good at all. Are we motivated to do good, to garner praise and admiration from other people? Are we motivated to do good, to try to get control from God, to say, now you have to bless my life? Now you have to love me. Now you have to give me what I want. Or are you motivated to do good out of deep humility in your heart saying, you are Lord, I am not. What are the motivations in your heart? And that leads to the second thing. After we examine our heart, we are called to repent of our sin. To repent of our sin. We talked um, two weeks ago about the difference between confession and repentance. Confession is to say, I'm sorry for my sin, but not necessarily to do anything about it. Repentance is to say, I'm sorry for my sin, but also to make a decision to make a U-turn and to change the actions of your life based on your confession. Confession means to unmask the sin, but repentance is to call it by its name and then to mortify the sin, to kill it, 
And one of the ways that we can do that, friends, is by being accountable to other people. Be accountable for your sin. Find a trusted confidant, another Christian, someone who's willing to walk with you in that journey. Because one of the ways that we deceive ourselves is that we confess our sin, but then it doesn't go anywhere. Let me give you an example of this. Let's suppose that your sin is kind of like the garbage in your house. And you have garbage that you haven't taken out to the curb for two, three months. It's in your kitchen. There's maggots. It stinks. It's gross. You've engaged in all sorts of self-deception. You've been Lysoling that kitchen for weeks. But finally you say, no, that's sin. That's sin. But without repentance, here's all you're doing. You're taking all that sin that was in your kitchen and you're just hiding it away in your guest bedroom where no one else really goes. And you close that door. That's just another form of self-deception. Confession without repentance is another form of self-deception. And I think in the Christian world, for us, this is a particular temptation that, we are, that many of us do. We confess it. We don't repent of it. We don't mortify it. We don't crucify it. We don't kill it. We merely confess of it. And so God calls us to more than that to kill it. It needs to be taken to the curb. So here's the question. Knowing that this is so painful, if we have an almost infinite ability to engage in self-deception, how will we ever have the courage to name the sin, to expose it for what it is, and to mortify it? How will we ever have the courage to do that? Well, the text gives us an answer to that question. We have to see the true Christ for who he is. Look with me at uh, 1 Samuel 12, verse 20. It says this. Samuel's just given them all the bad news. And then he says, do not be afraid. You have done all this evil, yet do not turn away from the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. Do not turn away, or do not turn away after useless idols. They can do you no good nor can they rescue you because they are useless. For the sake of his great name, the Lord will not reject his people because the Lord was pleased to make you his own. On what possible basis can Samuel tell these people, do not be afraid? Don't be afraid. How can he tell them this? Because it's terrible news. Friends, both the religious left and the religious right have a secret motivation when it comes to engaging our sin. The religious right, because they're so, they care so much about morals, their temptation when it comes to sin is to conceal it, to hide it away in the guest bedroom. The religious left, they want to be liberated from those things, break free from the shackles of oppression. So their temptation is to take sin and then to treat it with futility, to say, oh, it's not that big of a deal. It's not that big of a deal. It's okay. God forgives it. I had a conversation with God. God said, hey, no big deal. No problem. Just keep doing what you're doing. And Samuel says, both of those things are the wrong actions to take. We have to confess of our sin. And then we have to kill it. But how can we have that motivation in our heart to kill the sin? You have to see Jesus for who he is. And for what he's done for you. He says this, you've done all this evil. I'm not going to say it wasn't evil. It is evil, the things that you have done to God. But don't turn aside. 
don't be afraid. Because even though you've rejected God, God will not reject you. Even though you've rejected God, God will not reject you. The only way you'll be able to confront the sin in your life is if you come face to face with it and then you see Jesus, the true and better king, the true and better savior, the true and better anointed one. He looks straight into your sin as ugly and grotesque and just disgusting as it was. And he nailed it to the cross. You have to come face to face with your sin. Don't hide it. Don't conceal it. Expose it for what it is. And then rejoice that God could take it away. That's the reason why he came, friends. The reason why he came from heaven down to earth. Unlike Saul who goes up, 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 up. Jesus comes down, 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 down. He took on flesh. He dwelt among us. And there he went to Golgotha, the land of the skull, to scorn our sin, to crucify it, so that we can be set free. And that's the reason why, friends, we can sing that familiar hymn, Grace, Grace, God's Grace. Grace that can pardon and cleanse within. Grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that is greater than all our sin. Well, you've been listening to the latest message in our series through First and Second Samuel, tracing the life of David, the Shadow King. You can find more information about this series and our church's ministry at gatewaycrc.org. I'm Jason McNabb. Please join us next time on the weekly sermon at Gateway.